0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information
1: and hunting stories from across the nation. And now,
0: here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Oh, buddy. Here we go again. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And, uh... Today's podcast revolves around one of my favorite things, and that is food. Uh, today we are joined by the sporting chef, Scott Sath, and he is going to talk to us. I mean, this is kind of a, a BS session. We talk about food. We talk about how he got to be the sporting chef. We talk about a recent trip to Africa, amongst a whole bunch of other things. So, uh, yeah. A really cool and interesting podcast like I said I am a eater I love to eat I love to watch the food channels and uh, after I got off of the phone with Scott or after we recorded this podcast I ended up going to the deep freeze pulling out a backstrap following one of his simple recipes for grilling backstrap and I pulled the rabbit out of my butt and I cooked my best backstrap ever and here's how I did it really quick I thawed it all the way out I then marinated it in I put some salt some pepper and marinated it in some balsamic vinegar and then let that get then let the meat get to room temperature. I threw it on the grill five minutes on one side, five minutes on the other. I let it set for about five minutes, and it was absolutely delicious. So I recommend everybody trying that and don't overcook your, your meat like Scott mentions here. He also talks about a lot of cool Uh, ways to prepare the animals that you kill, and yeah, that's enough of me talking, but hey, before we get into today's podcast, we're going to hear from a satisfied Exodus customer about their quality customer service.
2: Sure. Uh, I bought a, uh, Exodus camera in October and, uh, was very excited to use it. Uh, I've got a lease that's four and a half hours away in Southwest Wisconsin. So, uh, obviously I'm not going to drive down there a couple of times a week just to check cameras. And I was looking for something that was dependable and, uh, it just lived up to the name and was very excited about, uh, about just everything that Exodus was touted to be, uh, got down after the camera had been up probably a couple of weekends and, uh, Found that, as usual per everybody that's had a trail camera, no uh, no pictures were taken uh, for that time. A um, little bit frustrating. Probably figured it was user error, but uh, in reading the Exodus website, there was a number said text to this number and somebody from our company will get a hold of you uh, Saturday afternoon, late October. Thinking, okay, well nobody's going to call me back till Monday, but. Um, anyway, I did text that number and within an hour I had a phone call back and it was one of the owners. I don't remember which one, but, uh, was really gracious, uh, talked me through, you know, what did I, what happened, what was going on. And, uh, you know, just gave me some pointers, kind of walked me through it. I wasn't in the field at the time when he called me, but, uh, I did what he said to do. Um, it was a formatting issue on my end. I probably just didn't hit the right number of buttons. But uh, the fact that on a Saturday in October, you've got the owner of the company calling you, I'm sure that uh, as avid deer hunters, he wanted to be in the deer stand as much as I did. Um, it just says a lot about the company that they're they're willing to call somebody and uh, work through whatever problems they could have. And uh, it just it says a lot to me. And as a business owner myself, I just know that uh, customers depend on, uh, you know, they're depending on a company when they buy some stuff. So. Uh, just the fact that they can do that is that just says a lot for them.
0: If you guys want to find out more information about Exodus trail cameras, please go visit exodusoutdoorgear.com. And as always, if you do decide to buy a trail camera, which by now you guys should all have at least two of them, right? Use the discount code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9 followed by the word FINGERS no spaces and you will receive $20 off of your trail camera purchase now be smart with your money because their new camera is coming out in a couple weeks if not one week so here in early June their next gen camera will be coming out and it's definitely something you need to look at Uh, we've already had the podcast uh, about that so check that out as well with Matt Klein from Exodus. But um, this next gen camera is going to be balling. So check that out. But now let's get into today's podcast with the sporting chef. All right, everybody. On the phone with me right now is Scott Lasath, the sporting chef. How are you doing today, Scott? Doing good, man.
1: It's now which we're just going to do this once, and then right. and I'm used to this. Lay Seth Seth I know, I know you know you can imagine what my mail looks like, <laughs> so you just can't dig it personally. I just thought I'd give you one crack at it and then you can just call me Scott. how's that you,
0: okay that's that's uh what I'm going to go with. Um, <laughs> it's almost embarrassing how many last names I screw up on on this uh, this podcast. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm used to that. I don't i, I do the same thing myself.
0: <laughs> well you are the sporting chef um and we're going to talk a lot about all that today but the first thing that i want to talk about and probably the most important as right now for uh, i guess the whitetail hunter is the you know the antlers are starting to grow velvet everybody's starting to get out and start you know hanging up trail cameras and whatnot how was your 2016 hunting season
1: you know unfortunately um, I spent more time on the road than I did in the field. I, where I live in Northern California and the thing that we have the biggest opportunity for here is definitely not white tailed deer. We have right. lots of ducks I've got setters. So we've got, you know, a fair amount of pheasant and quail. And these are, these are wild birds, but I just got back from South Africa a couple of weeks ago oh, wow. and we kind of helped make up for what we didn't
0: shoot last season. Gotcha. So how was that, how was that trip to Africa? You know, have you been? I have never been.
1: This was my first time and did a week in Cape Town where the food and wine is really good. Then spent eight nights at a lodge south of Kimberley, South Africa, and 100,000 acres. Our group killed 20-something animals. What was great about it, I mean, they're... They're free-ranging, they reproduce naturally, they're, what, where we lose a lot of people is they get there and they go, oh, wow, there's a fence. Yeah. Because a lot of people, you know, everything in South Africa is fenced, period. Yeah. But when you've got 100,000 acres of fence, it's a little bit different deal. Right. Um, and the animals, with very few exceptions, tasted like young cow elk. Wow. Yeah, my wife, who doesn't really eat a whole lot of wild game at all, um, her favorite coming away from it was zebra.
0: Oh, wow. And that and that blows my mind because my grandpa owned a horse farm, and the silhouette, obviously, looks exactly like a horse. <laughs> you wouldn't think that horse meat would taste good?
1: No, very much so. You would think it'd be lean and sinewy because horses are so strong and run fast. and. Yep. Uh, the zebra loin was some of the best meat I've ever had.
0: Man, that's crazy. I'm going to look at zebra Uh, a little different now.
1: Well, and you know, there's a lot of exotic animals there that, well, they're exotic to us, but, um, there were 30 something different animals on the property and it took me a while to figure out which was which, um, it's a lot easier to go white tail, black tail, mule deer. Right. Uh, that's it. Right. For deer anyway. So, right. um, but I do cook a fair amount of deer. i you know, I have a venison cookbook and they all, whether you're in South Africa or in Illinois, they all kind of behave the same when you overcook them or if you mistreat them or if you drive around in the back of your truck with them.
0: Right. For sure. Now, kind of a, continuing, continuing on the hunting thing for me, where I'm at in my life, um, for some reason, I don't have any interest at this time in my life to go to Africa and hunt. Now, that's not saying my mind has changed, but I've talked to people who thought the same way as me. But once you get there, it's like a life-changing event. Um, did you? Is that kind of the, how you felt, or did you know Africa was something that you've always wanted to do?
1: You know, Africa was not on my bucket list. Um, you know, New Zealand's on there, lots of places, I'm just thinking, God, it's just so far away. And, you know, I'm more apt to want to go shoot an elk in Colorado or a deer in Wyoming than I am to go 30 hours to get to South Africa to shoot an animal. Once I got there, though, it really was a whole different deal. Um, I'm interviewing people on the patio of this lodge, and in the background, there's a baby rhino chasing its mother. There's zebra way off in the distance. You can see with their heads well above the trees. We got busted a whole bunch of times on animals that we couldn't even get close to. Um, it was, you know, I'm, I'm with you before I went, before I got the opportunity opportunity to go, I'm not thinking it's always been my passion, but I'm going back. Right.
0: That's awesome so what was the hunting style like i mean on the hunting television shows all you you know most of it is in a blind over a water hole um is that how you did it or was there a little bit more spot and stock involved
1: ours was all spot and stock we did have some bow hunters in the group or two bow hunters in the group that would that were in blinds um by water holes and actually they weren't nearly as successful as those of us who did spot and saw, but I mean, the parcels are broken into thirty thousand acres at a time, and right. really, if it's it's not unlike, you know, big country deer hunting, and the, the terrain itself was kind of a West Texas with a little bit more vegetation and some taller trees.
0: Okay, all right. So the the rolling hills, not nothing. Not anything too terribly steep, and nothing too terribly fat, flat, but just kind of the rolling hills terrain.
1: Yeah, and you know, a few ravines here and there, but there was a fair amount of flat, and
0: yeah just
1: seeing herds of wildebeest and springbuck and giraffes and rhinos and things is, is a you know, it's some you know, after about the fifth day, you're going, "Oh, yeah, there's the rhinos over there, which you don't you don't, <laughs> you know, you don't want to have that attitude, right? You want to always right. appreciate that the rhinos are here.
0: Right. For sure. For sure. Now you mentioned you shot, you know, your group shot 20 some animals. What did you actually harvest?
1: You know, I only shot one animal. My goal was I'm, I was there to get TV
0: shows. So we had okay.
1: plenty of guys getting kill shots. I'm running cameras and I shot a blessed buck. You know what okay. that is?
0: I, it's like I, a I, small I, antelope.
1: Kind of like a small antelope. Yeah. And it's, and there it's pretty cool. It's got It's got an unusual deal on its head. It has a couple of scent glands that have worms in them that kind of keep them cleaned out. And they're they're born with these worms in their scent glands. And then they're always kind of scratching their face because the worms are scratchy, but the worms are keeping their scent glands clean.
0: Man, that's crazy. It's like the fish that uh, sucks on the shark's mouth type of deal.
1: Right. The the lampreys and the symbiotic relationship between some animals. Same yeah. kind of deal, and the blessed buck tasted like the spring buck and the gims buck, and they all uh, basically all they would do they wouldn't try and wrap it in bacon, jalapeno, and cream cheese and <laughs> make it not taste like <laughs> gims buck. They would soak it in olive oil, a little soy sauce, maybe some garlic, salt, and pepper for 25 to 30 hours. Slap it on a on a hot coal grill, wood coal grill cooked it rare to medium rare and it was like butter man
0: sounds delicious now I know that um I've had I've talked to some people who have been out in Africa and have done the hunting there and they they go there um they shoot their animal and it's basically just for the mount right the the food gets delivered to the the village is that what you witnessed or were you able to keep some of this
1: you can't take it home with you. We ate as much as we possibly could while we were there, um, and you know I'm not a trophy hunter. I'm a meat hunter, so that that didn't appeal to me. I didn't. I wasn't looking to bring big trophies home. Although those right. they're there. Um, I I like shooting a young cow elk over a big bull because it's just um, I plan on eating it. Um, right. So uh, right. it's there. If you want to do trophies, it's all there. You know I'm not not a lion hunter. It's just not my thing. If somebody else wants to do it legally, it's not, I got no problem with it. But, um, you know, I, I, I got a feeling, you know, it's, it's not cheap. So to do it the right way, if you wanted to bring home a bunch of trophies and things like that, it's, it's going to cost you. But if you just want to go, there's packages for like $7,000 where you can get food, lodging, airfare and shoot six animals.
0: Oh, nice.
1: And that that's not bad.
0: That's not bad at all. No. So you went with a group, uh, or you were there with a group. They shot about 23 different animals, or whatever you said, 20-ish different animals. Did all those animals end up on the grill in front of you at some point throughout your trip?
1: Well, we ate, we ate some of every animal, but the animals there, um, as you mentioned, they use it's a big economic base and a, and a sustainable protein base. Um, where we stayed, there were 95 employees. There were a lot of uh, immigrants from Zimbabwe and some other places that do a lot of work there. They take as much meat as they want. Um, much of the rest of the meat gets donated to local shelters and, gotcha. and villages and things. Um, you know, what we do there really does have a huge impact on the economy in South Africa, what the hunters do.
0: Right. Right. And I love how the haters online, you know, they'll trash talk hunters that go over there. And whether they're there for a trophy or, you know, to go there on uh, a a hunt slash vacation, kind of what you did, uh, it all provides money to the people of that country. So, uh, like you said, it's it's huge economic relief,
1: economic relief, jobs. Um, and a and that source of protein that they that they give them really big 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 difference. Right.
0: Okay. Well, that sounds like fun, and uh, it's something that I'm gonna I'm gonna put on not my bucket list quite yet, but on a list uh-huh. that sits next to my bucket list.
1: Sure. All
0: right. So, how did Scott become the sporting chef that that time before you were known as a sporting chef? What was that transition like? What were you doing back then before you were the sporting chef? Talk to us a little bit about that transition.
1: You know, it wasn't a well-planned career path, and it's not one I don't know if anybody could duplicate. I was <laughs> as, as short as I could make it. I was, I was working as a bouncer when I was finishing school, and at the <laughs> time, I could make almost no money working with juvenile delinquents somewhere out in the mountains outside of Tucson, Arizona, or they said, why don't you be a manager at our Phoenix location. So I got a two week training course on how to be a bartender cook manager. And I ended up being vice president of this 33 unit restaurant chain eventually. So always had a passion for cooking. My parents would go out of town in high school, which is a bad idea when you have a high school kid (laughs) at home. Amen. And I certainly learned not to do that with mine. He never (laughs) stood a chance. So, um, People would come over, and I'd cook for them. Always loved to hunt and fish. My dad was an Alabama farm boy, um, you know. Grew up in Virginia hunting and fishing, and, and the cooking thing has always been a passion. Um, I was I had a restaurant in Sacramento, California, and somebody said, "Hey, you want to be on HGTV?" And so I was. I did 185 shows behind the scenes and on camera on an HGTV show, and I've been hosting my own outdoor cooking shows since, wow well, uh, for 17 years maybe. I've been on Sportsman Channel since they
0: started. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so backing, backing up just a little bit though, um, f- for, for me, food is the center of all of my family gatherings, right? There's a table or a countertop. Every time there's a family gathering, that is wall-to-wall food just different varieties of everything is, is that how you became, I mean, is, is that how you kind of got started? I mean, just being a food lover in general or just loving to cook or how, how did you grow into loving to cook? You know, it just kind of happened. I've, I've always
1: liked cooking. Uh, My mother was an art teacher, so it's kind of a, maybe it's my, how I express that side of me, but
0: right. Um,
1: uh, you know, when everybody's coming over, it's, it's really has changed a whole lot. I think food network changed the world as far as how food goes. I mean, we never right. many, many years ago, we, we would have never thought a fast food chain would have a Chipotle anything. Right. Um, and people, they, you know, they expect more from their food now. It's not I don't, I can't think of the last time I saw a TV dinner. I know they're still out there, Yep. but I, I grew up eating them, but I, I, I don't know that I've ever bought one in the last 50 years anyway, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and even with hunting, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people weren't saying, uh, I'm going to do a balsamic reduction with some blackberries on this duck. They were saying, well, Dan, I can't believe you missed that duck with his feet down in your face.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And, and right. so it's changed a lot now. So we, the way we look at food is different. You see, you know, there's wild game cooking competitions all over the place. People are having game feeds. People are bringing over different fish and game dishes. And there are still those who are afraid of wild game and who have decided a long time ago that it all tastes bad. But some of them are actually
0: coming around. Okay, this and you mentioned like the Food Channel and uh, Cook Channel and all those networks, and I, my wife and I are a big fan of some of those cooking competitions as well. Now, what? How would you describe your cooking style? Because I watch these TV shows. And I see guys using like canisters of high-pressured gas to cook, you know, like getting really deep into the science of it. And then you got your basic, you know, I'm going to throw meat on the grill, add some salt to it, and I'm done. I'm somewhere in between. I am not the molecular gastronomy foamy
1: guy. I'm not looking for the next most obscure ingredient to cook with. To me, the victory is – when people tell me that I don't like the taste of duck, I'll say, try this. And they'll go, what did you do? Why does that taste so good? And I'll say, I did, probably did a lot less than you did. Um, you know, some pretty basic principles. If you've got a tougher cut of meat, you want to cook it low heat, slowly, a little bit of liquid maybe, braise it. Uh, the better cuts, you want to cook fast and hot and don't overcook them. The very simple things like that, brining or dry-aging your waterfowl, turns it into a completely different animal without compromising the flavor, without, as I mentioned earlier, wrapping it in jalapeno, bacon, soaking in teriyaki, and all this other stuff. You know, for a lot of us, the victory is it doesn't taste like game. And if if people just understand some basic principles about if there is gamey flavor where it comes from, how long to cook certain parts of an animal. Um, And then I love coming back the next year and talking to the same group and they go, man, I don't give my ducks away anymore. Right. And for the most part, all I did was give them permission to cook it less. Right.
0: So you kind of mentioned something that caught my attention and my wife always, you know, she's tried deer meat before and she goes, Oh, it's too gamey for me. And I'm going to admit I'm not the best cook when it comes to cooking deer meat. Um, I've improved over the years, but I'm, I'm st- I still have a lot of work to do. But where does that "quote unquote" gamey taste come from? Well,
1: if you take if you take a, a duck breast, for instance, and and you soak it in a salt water brine for six or eight hours, you cut it in half, you cook half of it medium rare and half of it medium well. It's two completely different. Duck. Um, the one that's cooked medium well and beyond has that livery, muttony, chewy flavor. The one that's cooked medium rare or to about 130, 135 degrees in the center is a lot juicier and a lot less pronounced and gamey flavor. Um, same thing with venison. If you take a deer steak and you cook it beyond medium rare, it's not going to taste like a like like a medium rare piece of meat. Um, we often Cook gamey flavors into game as opposed to taking them out. And it's simply by cooking it so long. I can't think of a worse thing to do with a pheasant for me personally than to cut it up and to put it into a crock pot with a can of cream of mushroom soup. (laughs) Because it tastes exactly, it tastes just like cream of mushroom soup. Right, right. And I want my pheasant to taste like pheasant. Um, And if you take a pheasant and you cook it too long, it'll be dry. You right. do that to your turkey, it's going to be dry, or your quail, or your chuck, or whatever. But if you cook it just right, it's not going to be. So, really, my style of cooking is very simple. Um, if your deer tastes bad, um, you know, the rut's going to matter somewhat, but you can overcome that. Um, right. If it's too tough, if the meat's tough, you got you cube it up and you cook it low and slow. anything cooked at low heat, slowly, with a little bit of liquid, will eventually be tender you I mean it can all be stew meat
0: yeah, right okay so with with that said how do you know which pieces of meat on an animal need to be cooked high, high and fast or low and slow well take well
1: let's let's do a deer so obviously on the outside on top you've got the loins you've got the backstrap. Right. Right. Um, you don't really need to. You, that's a fast and hot piece for me, and I'm more likely to cook about an eight to ten ounce chunk of that backstrap, as opposed to butterflying it into steaks that a lot of processors do. It makes it way too thin, and I don't know why they do that, and I wish they'd stop. I'd rather get, a, I'd rather have that backstrap in one whole piece, so that I can do a lot of stuff with it. So the backstrap, the tenderloin, that's going to be cook fast and hot. Some of the better muscles in the hindquarter, depending on the animal itself, the age, the sex. Um, what I normally do is I'll take, whether it's top round, bottom round sirloin, out of the out of the hindquarter and cut a little piece up, put some salt and pepper on it, slap it in, in, into a hot skillet and see how it behaves. If it's tender, you can do pretty much anything with it. Um, if it's tough, then you're going to have to the, – really, the only remedy is to go kind of low and slow if it's going to be a tough, chewy piece of meat. So if you wanted to do the slow cooker during the day while you're at work, that works great. The thing that kills me the most that people throw away on their deer is the shanks. Um, right. If you've had osabuco at a great restaurant, those shanks are so good. You brown them and you put them into a, a Dutch oven with some – Celery, carrot, onion, a little bit of red wine, uh, maybe some balsamic vinegar, cover it up and just let it simmer at low heat for six or seven hours and the meat just falls right off the bone.
0: Okay. All right. So what are, you know, aside from overcooking the meat, what are some, I guess, Average person mistakes when it comes to cooking any type of venison, whether that's you know antelope or elk meat or uh, deer meat or I mean any any red meat. Um, dry aging makes a
1: big big difference. John McGannon has a company called Wild Eats, um, and he makes some, he makes seasonings, but he also has a very good explanation on why dry aging. Makes sense for antler games, for big game. If you take a deer roast, deer shoulder roast, um, and and you don't, I mean, you you go to a good restaurant and they talk about a twenty-eight day dry aged steak. Um, the reason that costs so much is because it loses a lot of the moisture that's in the meat, as it all that all that capillary blood is going to evaporate, um, and so it's going to weigh less. So when you get a ten ounce dry aged steak, it's going to cost you more. Cause you've lost a lot of the weight. If you take a venison roast and you just, if it hasn't been dry aged, you put it on a rack with a pan underneath, underneath it, stick in your refrigerator for two weeks and it's going to get a little crusty on top, cut that part off. It's infinitely more tender that way because it's been dry aged. Um, You get a big animal and you haven't aged it properly. It's going to be tough and you're going to go, man, I can't believe this animal. I can't eat this thing. It's too tough. Um, so driving around with it in the back of your pickup on a hot day in October in the South, another bad idea. I see that. I see that a lot. Right. Right. Um, improper field cleaning, not getting it cooled and cleaned and hung up and on ice makes a big difference in general. Deer blood doesn't taste good. So you want to make sure that it's hung long, that it's dry aged, and it'll make a big difference on your deer.
0: Okay. So... What kind of tools or, I guess, guess, yeah, I guess tools, space, does someone need to properly do that? Okay, so we, for the most part, we know about what to do and not to do for gutting the animal. But for me, I'll tell you, I'll put it like this. From the time I shoot it to the time it gets into the freezer, uh, when I kill my deer is probably less than 24 hours, if not, and that basically depends on the temperature. It might hang a little length uh, longer if it's, uh, you know, if it's cooler outside, but if it's like a, a opening week, October doe kill uh, it's in the freezer cut up, bef- you know, inside 24 hours easy,
1: which is infinitely better than letting it hang when it's above 40 degrees, then it's going to spoil. And you've got all sorts of bacteria and, and it's just a bad idea. So right. that makes complete sense. Now, if when you go to thaw some of those deer parts out, when you go to break them down farther, if it turns out that some of that meat is tougher than it should be, then again, you can always dry age it afterwards. If you, you know, most people don't have a dry aging locker that they can hang their deer in, unless they take it to a processor, that's willing to do that, that's willing to hang it for that many days. I mean, and during the height of deer season in most places, they just don't have the room. So you can take a cooler with ice in it, put a rack and a pan in it, and do your dry aging in a cooler in the garage, especially in the the cooler weather months. Mm -hmm. Just make sure that the temperature is between, I'm roughly between 34 and 40 degrees.
0: 34 and 40 degrees. Okay.
1: But but I've got a you know, a lot of us have refrigerators in our garage. Yep. That's not a bad place to dry age a hunk of deer.
0: Okay. Just keep it above above freezing, above that 34 degree mark.
1: Right. Above 34 and below
0: 40. Okay. This is a question that I, I, I don't know. It may come off as dumb, but uh, I don't know. So that's why I'm going to ask it. Can you... Let's say I, I take out a huge chunk of meat. I throw it in the freezer after I, I kill my deer. I br- come. I bring it out next month, and I do some more work on it. I let it thaw all the way, chop it up. Is it a bad idea to refreeze that again? You know, I will refreeze um, red meat once. Um, okay. If you do it more
1: than that, what you're going to find is it's going to get these little crystals in it, and it's going to compromise the flavor and the texture of the meat. Um, it looks different if you keep refreezing it. But – right. Get as much of the air out. I get as much of the moisture out of it as you can. So if it's if it's a little bit on the bloody side, you want to make sure that you blot it with really good two ply paper towels, um, and then you can refreeze it. You don't want a lot. Of, you know, vacuum sealers better than than throw it throwing it in a bag. But again, um, I don't have a problem with refreezing red meat one time.
0: All right. All right. Now I want to talk to you about three specific um not recipes themselves but a real easy recipe a middle of the road recipe and a very like maybe one of the most complex recipes for deer meat that that you may have um or not maybe the the recipe specifically but an idea basically so can and, and we can start off at the the basic most simplest recipe for for wild game um for uh, deer? And, and what would that be?
1: You know, the one that I was talking about that they did in South Africa is, is perfect. It's, it's not, doesn't disguise the flavors. If you have a trimmed deer backstrap and you want to make sure that you get all that silver skin off of there because it doesn't taste good, smell good, and your body doesn't process it. So remove the silver skin. You've got nothing but muscle. Um, liberally coat it with salt and pepper or your favorite seasoning Put it in some olive oil, a little soy sauce and garlic and leave it in there. You know, in South Africa, they were saying 24 to 30 hours. I'm going to say, you know, six hours is good. 12 okay. is better. Not, And I wouldn't go beyond 24. I don't think it's necessary. Put that on a grill. Don't cook it past medium rare. Let it rest for a few minutes after you take it off the grill. Slice it. And maybe for people that can't handle the medium rare part, Maybe turn the lights down low so they could just can't tell how well. <laughs> is that, I mean, that, a lot of it, is, a lot of it is
0: just the mental perception image of it all. Yeah, I gotcha. Okay, is that going to come off a little bloody on the plate then?
1: It's gonna if you let it rest first. Um, what happens is the meat redistributes when you when people talk about letting meat rest when it comes off a grill. All the juice goes to the coldest part of the meat. So if you take a piece of meat out of the refrigerator, throw it on a grill. Take it off the grill and then throw it on people's plates. What's going to happen is they're going to cut into it and all that juice is going to run out. Whereas if you let it rest for several minutes after you take it off the heat, it allows it to relax. And all that juice that's stuck in the center redistributes throughout the whole part of the meat. So when you cut into it, it's not it's it will less likely run all over the plate. And and people say they see the color of it and they're thinking, oh, that's blood. There's blood everywhere. It's not blood. It's just juice.
0: Okay, all right, and uh, so that's so that's something that's very simple. Now, one thing that kind of popped up in in my head is how do I how do I know I'm cooking something medium rare? Uh, do you recommend like a, a digital thermometer in a, in a in a specific temperature to get it to? A meat thermometer is
1: always a good idea until you know what medium rare feels like or what your desired temperature feels like. You know, there are people that's, that that point to parts of your hand and say that's rare, medium rare, and that's, you know, I'd have, I can never remember which part is which. Use a meat thermometer. Rare is going to be about 125 degree internal temperature. 135 is medium rare. Beyond 145, it really starts to get into a different zone, and okay. it's going to be less tender and less juicy. Um, and eventually, you'll be able to push down on it and go, that's rare to medium rare. The guy that's cooking your steak at a good steakhouse doesn't cut holes into it, doesn't use a meat thermometer. He knows what medium rare feels like.
0: Gotcha. Okay. All right. Now let's step up the game a little bit and go to a recipe that uh, isn't easy, but uh, isn't uh, that complicated as well.
1: This is my go-to recipe that I use to change people's mind about what game tastes like, whether it's a deer, duck, antelope, don't care. So let's take a deer steak. It's trimmed There's no gristle, fat, silver skin on it. I've rubbed it with a little bit of olive oil, your favorite seasoning. You heat a little bit of olive oil and butter in a skillet, get it nice and hot, slap that deer steak in there, flip it over, as soon as you flip it over, add a couple, let's say about a quarter cup of balsamic vinegar, maybe a teaspoon or two of some kind of berry preserves, whatever's in the refrigerator, some fresh rosemary leaves, chopped up if you have them, a little bit of garlic. When that deer steak is done, take it out, keep it on a warm plate while you're reducing this pan sauce. Add a little splash of red wine. Let that reduce down to maybe two or three tablespoons of liquid. Whisk in some butter. Throw in some fresh berries in there, preferably two colors like a blackberry raspberry, and then just kind of spoon that buttery, balsamic wine berry sauce over the deer steak
0: and that's a game changer for someone who quote-unquote doesn't like deer meat it, they say they
1: don't like deer meat because it looks pretty and you know if you if you want to get somebody to eat a duck you don't put a whole duck in front of them and say there you go have a field day right you're gonna right. you want to make sure that the legs are cooked slowly and come off the bone that the breast is off the bone and sliced really easily otherwise People are going to say, this is just way too much work. You want the deer to look good with a little bit of color on there. You haven't disguised the flavor of the deer and then they'll try it and it's kind of sweet and kind of sour and it seems to make a difference.
0: Okay. How much time does something like that take? Seven, eight minutes. Seven, seven or eight minutes. (laughs) I'm (laughs) telling you, I'm cooking three minutes aside
1: on that deer steak. The sauce is made in the pan most of what I cook can be done in one skillet. Okay. I, my is, stuff my stuff is just not that complicated.
0: Gotcha. Is that like on a medium heat, a high heat? I'm going to go pretty high on that. Um, and okay. the deer
1: stay is going to be about an inch thick. Um, and, you, you know, I, I went with my brother who was an airline pilot. And so we want my brother to be flying the plane, not me, because – he goes through all the pre-flight checks when you play golf with him. It takes him two hours to hit the golf ball because he has to make sure his hands are right and this and that and everything. And that's, I'm going, would you just hit the freaking golf ball? And so for him cooking, he goes, okay, at what temperature and how long do I cook my chicken? And I go, man, it's different. You live in Las Vegas where it's a higher elevation. Um, if your grill says medium, I don't know what that means. You want it to get it seared on the outside and not overcooked on the inside. If you're, if you're cooking it in a grill, obviously, a lot of us will have a cold part of the grill and a hot part of the grill. If you're cooking it in the, in a skillet, if it looks like it's cooking too fast, you lower the heat. But I like it crispy on the outside and medium rare on the inside. So if it's in the skillet, I would say medium-high heat. Um, and if you put butter and olive oil in the skillet, the butter is going to help brown it. The olive oil is going to keep it from burning. As soon as it's marked on one side, you flip it. It's going to be in there for another couple of minutes. Take it out, finish your sauce, you're done.
0: Okay. All right. Now, the complex recipe. And even my complex
1: isn't that complex. But take, let's take a 10-inch section of that backstrap. And we've okay. removed remove the silver skin. Um, lay it out in front of you. And take a good, sharp thin bladed knife and run along the bottom third going all the way across from top to bottom. So it's laying flat like a tube and starting at the top of that tube on the bottom third make a cut but not all the way through. So if this is uh, give me a second you should be able to make a hinge on it and flop it open. Okay. And then and then take the next piece the big part and you're going to make another cut through the middle of that towards the outside but not all the way through what you're going to end up with is something that looks like a book with two hinges so, so it'll have like three sections hinged together and then you kind of flatten it out with your hands um so that it's relatively even thickness so now you have a back strap that used to be round that's now flat and kind of pounded even a little bit more so okay. and it's are we are you with me
0: yep okay so it's, now, so it's looking like kind of a square like a rectangle, it's
1: looking like like a yeah like a like a flat rectangle as opposed to something round. So
0: right.
1: now you're going to line it with some some cool stuff, whatever makes you happy. I'm going to put fresh basil leaves along the whole thing, um, some really thin sliced prosciutto, um, some blue cheese because I happen to like blue cheese. If you don't, don't put blue cheese in there. Put some bread in there on top of the cheese because that way. It'll keep the cheese from running out when the meat is done. Um, take the whole thing and roll it up really, really tightly, um, really, really, really snugly. Make sure you tuck in the ends as you go along. Then take some butcher string, tie the whole thing together, rub it with olive oil, salt and pepper, uh, brown it on a, on a in a cast iron skillet, and then pop that cast iron skillet into a 450 degree oven for another five or six minutes. To cook it until it's rare to medium rare. Take that out, let it rest for a few minutes, untie it, cut it into medallions. So now you have this little swirly looking prosciutto basil. You could even throw some mushrooms in there, blue cheese. And you put that, arrange that on a plate with some garlic mashed potatoes, make a little pan sauce out of the juices from the meat itself. And it's still not complicated, but... It really makes a big impression on people,
0: right? Right. So it it's one of those things that it looks complex, but it's really not.
1: It is, and you know. And, and again, I'm I want I want to simplify the whole cooking process. Right. Um, I don't want to spend two hours in the kitchen. If you look at a recipe that's three pages long, the chances are most people aren't going to do it anyway. For sure. Um, so that's I, if you can get. Five ingredients, throw it in a skillet, and make it taste great. To me, that's the victory.
0: Awesome. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is parts of the deer that people typically leave in the woods is when they gut them. Uh, Is there any part of the innards that we typically leave on the forest floor that you would recommend keeping and cooking?
1: Yeah, no, I'm not an innards guy, okay. And I and I know I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to like uni, um, which is uh, sea urchin gonads. You know, I mean, yeah, people that eat sushi, they go. God, I love uni. I'm like, man, I just don't love uni. Right. I'm not an Oregon guy. We, I, I have another TV show called Dead Meat, and we were in South Texas, and these people served me a machito, and it is goat heart, liver, and lung wrapped with Goat's fat and tied with goat intestines. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a little undercooked, too. Yeah. So if, if you can imagine, like, this warm fat on the outside with the crunchy organ parts in the center, that's just um, that's confirmed what I've always known all along, is that I'm just not an organ guy.
0: All right. Fair enough. Now, what about, um, I'll, I'll tell you what, everybody thinks they can make jerky. And then I taste it. And then I I almost want to say to their face, but I, I'm too nice. I don't want to hurt their feelings that this is horrible. You should never make jerky again. <laughs> What's the trick to making a good jerky?
1: Well, you know, if you, if it kind of depends on whether you want to do the extruded with all that ground meat that people have way too much of in their freezer. Yeah. And they have, you know, High Mountain makes a gun that kind of like, will extrude it and it'll always be really, really tender. I kind of like... The texture I like whole meat muscle jerky. Okay. Um, I tell people, and I mean as uh, full disclosure, High Mountain Seasonings is a sponsor of the show of my oh. of the Sporting Chef TV show. But I use their stuff all the time. I tell people that that make not so good quality jerky. They need to try a High Mountain mix. If 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 after that they can't figure it out, they don't. They shouldn't be making jerky anyway because there's so many different flavors. I I just find that, you know, you want to make sure if you want it to be more tender, you want to cut across the grain. If you like it tougher, you cut with the grain. Um, People don't marinate it long enough. People don't season it enough. Um, They dry it out until it's like crispy bacon bits. Um, And it's really it's it's not one of those timing things. It's hard to say, you know, put it in at 120 degrees for however many hours it is because it's different the altitude right. is different, where you are is different the dehydrator, smoker, oven whatever you are is different, to me jerky is more of an art um, and you just have to if, if you just have to keep if it's not working, do something different um, find a different recipe some people maybe just don't like, don't know what good jerky tastes like, so they think theirs is fine okay but it's it's really it's one of those things that it's really hard to have an exact recipe for jerky. Everybody's tastes are different, the meat's different, the thickness is different, and so you just gotta mess around with it
0: all right all right, so it's summer um me and my family we do a lot of fishing um and typically our fish fries consist of battering them in deep fat frying them and then eating them with uh uh, tartar sauce, right? That's that's good, that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's great. I love it. I, but <laughs> let, I want to do something different. Uh, the next time I go and let's say I, I catch a, a mesa bluegill or or some some pond bass,
1: are you cooking it out there or are you bringing them home?
0: Uh, well, out there and home. Let's see, my parents have a pond right next to their house, right? So it can be we can do either way.
1: I'll tell you what I like to do with those little panfish, with bluegill and crappie, and um, any of the smaller fish. I like to make fish cakes. Um, okay. And so, take your favorite crab cake recipe, and if you can take bluegill, if you cook the whole bluegill, and then you just you can shred the all the fl- the cooked flesh off it. And I want you to pretend now that that is now crab meat. It's like nice white flaky crab meat. Season it with some Old Bay seasoning. Um, I'll put like a little dusting of flour on it just to help everything stick to it. And then you'd use your favorite crab cake recipe. Um, Do whether you're cracker crumbs, egg, mayonnaise, whatever it is. What's cool about it is your fish cake doesn't have to be this big breaded thing that you get in a lot of restaurants. It can be mostly fish. And with that Old Bay seasoning or any any of the the crab-type seasoning, crab cake-type seasonings, it tastes just like crab cake. If you want to make it even cooler, take a big shrimp, butterfly it, peel it and butterfly it, but leave the tail, the pink tailbone on there, the little tail shell, Um, dust it with flour and then flatten it out. So it's butterflied and build that fish cake around the shrimp. So you've got this crappie cake or bluegill cake with that shrimp tail sticking out. Um, You, you give it a little dusting and put it in some buttermilk, dust it in flour or breadcrumbs and put it in some, uh, just a little bit of oil to brown it on both sides. I swear it tastes like a crab cake with a shrimp in the middle.
0: Nice. What's, uh, what's one of your favorite recipes for fish? You know, I like to eat mine raw. Um, okay.
1: I, uh, <laughs> whether it's, Homegrown tomatoes or oysters or fish, I, I tend to be more on the raw side, which doesn't surprise most people. I like to use what's fresh. So if I've got a, a saltwater loin, a, a big saltwater steak or, 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 or a striper, something like that, I like to rub it with olive oil, salt and pepper. I love to put it on the grill and I'll make, especially in the summertime, something fresh to go with it. It can be chopped up homegrown tomatoes, garlic, fresh basil, a good olive oil, um, and just maybe something a little spicy like some jalapeno pepper. And then when that fish comes off the grill, I'm going to put a little bit of that tomato, salsa, basil, whatever I'm going to call that, right on top. Give the fish a big squeeze of lemon and lime before I serve it because that livens the fish up. And that's that, those are my go-to type of
0: recipes. Okay. So... So, I from you talking, you're kind of a keep it simple, stupid type of, of cook, right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I like seasonal ingredients, fresh ingredients whenever possible, um, and and I'm I don't want to overcomplicate it.
0: Right now, cooking overall, you know, people just and I'm, I'm I fit into this category of probably overcooking and I'm not talking about deer or fish or bird or or really anything I'm just making a general statement I probably overcook over season uh, and and just turn you know turn it bad uh, it turns out bad and when I say bad I mean I'm still gonna eat it but it's not you know, I'm flipping through the pictures of, of your website and just the pictures. I, I want to lick my, my computer screen. But <laughs> what are some tips that you can give, just some general tips to the listeners about cooking wild game or fish or, or, or like, turkey or anything?
1: Well, and, you know, we've kind of touched on it. And really, the, the overcooking thing, get a meat thermometer. Um you know, a pop-up timer on your Thanksgiving turkey pops out at about 185 degrees. To me, that's 20 degrees too much. Um, I use a meat therm I use my own meat thermometer. Um, if you're a a person who goes to a restaurant and orders a well-done steak, well-done deer steak isn't going to work for you because it's right. going to be livery and mutton. I mean, you may like it. I don't like a well-done deer steak. So, but the... It doesn't mean you can't eat deer. It just means that you're better off doing it low and slow, um, doing chili stews, those kinds of things where it's, it can still be moist and and flavorful and not tough and chewy and muttony. So, you know, cooking time, matching the right cooking temperature, the right cooking style to the different parts of an animal, to me, that's that's... That's the biggest difference. There are some pretty, pretty basic things. You can't fast cook a deer shoulder stick. It's going to be too sinewy. But if you take that deer shoulder and you rub it with olive oil and salt and pepper and you brown it, then you throw it into a roasting pan with a couple of cans of beer and celery carrot onion covered up with foil, put it in a 300 degree oven for about eight hours, you'll be able to grab that shoulder bone and it comes off in your hand clean and all these beautiful hunks of meat where all that silver skin is disintegrated and it's like stew meat. You can use it for tacos and those kinds of things um, as opposed to doing a deer steak. And you'll find that you'll really gain a a better appreciation for the game animals. If we use everything, um, don't just breast out a wild turkey and throw the rest of the bird away. There's so much good stuff on that bird. But we just don't know any better. We're thinking, you know, I've tried cooking a whole turkey and it doesn't work. Right. So cook the turkey breast quickly, cook the turkey legs and thighs low and slow, and make stock out of the bodies and you're using the whole animal.
0: Nice. Yeah. Uh, admittedly, I tried uh, last year. I tried to follow a recipe uh, for turkey legs. The The breasts, the breasts turned out all right, uh, but the the turkey legs that I had a completely different recipe for, I tried to brine it and then cook it slow and it did not work. So I screwed (laughs) it up. I don't know. I don't know what I did wrong, but, um, the good thing is there's always next time.
1: Right. And, and so, you know, you can cook a turkey leg for many hours and still beat somebody over the head with it. They, there's, there's a whole lot of muscle there and it's pretty sinewy, but Mm -hmm. at some point, um, You go low and slow enough, if it still doesn't shred off the bone, just add a little more liquid, cover it up, and put it back in there for a while. It'll eventually get tender.
0: Nice. Yeah. I'm going to have to try that next time. Well, before uh, before we part our separate ways here, you are involved with something called Hunt Fish Feed with the Sportsman's Channel. Why don't you tell us what that's all about?
1: this is the 10 year anniversary of the hunt fish feed program it's an initiative started by sportsman channels where we connect hunters and anglers with food banks and shelters and we we basically you're just bringing attention to um, the homeless and hungry problem in the u.s um, it's not what you probably think um, if you haven't been to a shelter and we've done 75 80 shelters or so we'll do 15 of them this year um, You know, there are there are the typical what you would expect to see at a homeless shelter. um, But there's also people I've talked to in 2007 and eight that said, man, I didn't ever think I'd be here. Um, I I had a house. I sold everything I could possibly sell. You know, when the economy tanked, we were paycheck to paycheck and something bad happened. And people that have catastrophic events to them that happened to them and they have nowhere to turn, there are shelters around the country that that are gonna feed five and 600 people three times a day, 365 days a year. So, you know, in Texas, they're talking about poisoning, uh, using warfarin to poison all the wild hogs there because it becomes such a problem. Well, we're saying, don't do that, <laughs> let's use them to feed people. Right. Um, you know, there's, in Virginia, the single largest source of protein for, for the shelters is game donated by hunters. So, you know, those of us who hunt get enough bad press um, for whatever reason, and we want to bring attention to what's going on out there. We want to encourage hunters and anglers to donate to the local shelters to help feed the folks. Um, it makes you feel good, and it certainly gives the hunters, um, you know, gives a, it helps to support the good image that we are there to support our communities. And really it's kind of hard to argue when you're at a homeless veteran shelter, if somebody wants to make a big stink that we're feeling, feeding them wild pigs. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that would be too politically correct. Right. So it's a great program. And um, we were just in San Antonio. Next stop is Salt Lake City, Los Angeles, Indianapolis. We're, we're all over the place.
0: That's uh that's that's awesome. That's a, a great initiative. Um, what is the name of your cookbook?
1: Uh, the Sporting Chef's Better Venison Cookbook um, is the one that you can always find on Amazon. There is another Sporting Chef's Favorite Wild Game Fish and Game Recipes, or you know if you go to sportingchef.com, um, that's my website. I know this doesn't help me sell any cookbooks but there's a lot of free stuff there you don't need to buy anything we don't even sell anything on our website so there's plenty of recipes there I would start there uh, and 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 just look at some of the basic things to do plenty of resources there we've got a YouTube channel also if you want if you'd rather see it in video uh, the outdoor sportsman group which is um Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, and the World Fishing Network have an app called my outdoor TV (motv. dot com where if you don't get Sportsman Channel or Outdoor channel or World Fishing Network, you can get it uh, on online now. It's on sling TV now and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm out there. Plenty of resources don't need to buy anything.
0: All right. I got one one last question for you just because I'm curious. What goes into a chef like yourself creating a cookbook? You know, um, you do it enough, and
1: I've been doing it for a long time. Um, you just know how stuff tastes, and yeah. and you get inspired by other people and by other things. And you know, you want for me, I want my cookbook to to express my philosophy of food, not just to out-chef somebody else and find ingredients that nobody has. So to me, your cookbook should be an expression of, of how you prepare your meals. And, um, I, you know, it's again, just like my career path, It wasn't. it's not exactly well thought out when I get started on it.
0: It's basically just like a gathering of all your favorite things.
1: Pretty much. And then put it in some kind of – in some kind of organization so people can understand it, you know, like with waterfowl that people want, well, how do I cook a, wa- of a wigeon? a And I'll say, well, just cook it like a mallard, but not as long and less than a teal or yeah. more than a teal. So, um, people want more descriptions when basically if I just had a book that said duck approximate right. cooking time, here's all these different sauces that go with it. It makes more sense, but that's not what people
0: want. Right, for sure, for sure. Well, Scott, uh, first off, I want to say thanks for uh, taking time to come on the podcast and and, uh, talk with us for a while.
1: My pleasure. Always good to talk food.
0: And there you have it another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Scott for coming on the podcast and uh, taking some time to talk with us today. Huge shout out to each and every one of you, the listener of this podcast. Uh, Hopefully you're still listening because I am a big fan of cookbooks, especially ones that uh, offer a unique perspective off some kind of meat that I love, like deer meat. Uh, Scott has decided to throw in a free cookbook for a giveaway and uh, it's pretty simple. Go visit the Sporting Chef's Facebook page. Like it and leave a comment nine fingers sent me and uh, basically what we're going to do is just like everyone uh, I'm going to pull a name at random and uh, you might win a cookbook from the Sporting Chef. Now remember you also need to share the post that mentions this podcast on my off my Facebook page. And uh, that's how you enter. So that d- by doing those three things, you will win. And uh, yeah, you, c- you got your chance to win. I got mumble mouth tonight. I'm going to call it quits. Uh, be sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Also, I am looking for guys or gals or whoever to come on the podcast. I'm looking to schedule for July, whether that's a a BS session, a hunter profile podcast, a product review podcast. Uh, If you're a public land hunter, I would love to talk uh, um, public land strategy with you. Or if you are new to a certain style of hunting, I would like to talk you know talk with you about that um if you're an elk hunter and you come across this podcast an antelope hunter and you come across this podcast mule deer and you do everything spot and stock i i would love to uh broaden the horizons of this podcast and uh uh talk with you guys as well other than that hopefully everybody has a great rest of your week thank you again for tuning in oh i forgot the most important part Huge shout out to the partners of this podcast, Ozonix, Exodus, Gearhead, Wasp, Deer Lab, Ripcord, last but not least, Lone Wolf. Please go support the companies that support this podcast. Um because from a financial standpoint, without them, this podcast is not possible. I mean, it's possible. I'd probably still do it for free, but uh, it's easy to convince the wife to spend this amount of time in a room by myself without watching the kids when there's money involved. I think you all get my drift. So have a good week and wear your damn safety harness.